Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Thank you so much for checking back in. Today we're trying out something new and I'd love to hear your feedback and see if you would like me to turn this into a series interviewing Jewish people talking about their grief and their loss. I also thought this was an appropriate episode to release in preparation for the Yom Hadin. This also connects for me to the new year in a very deep way because our guest, who is my uncle, also leads the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur prayers in his shul in Muncie. And I find his davening to be extremely deep, meaningful, and you'll hear why. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back to the Francisco Show. Today we have a special episode with my uncle, Rabbi Ben Sion Brody, who lives in Muncie, one of the co-founders of Yeshivas or Uvim. It's such an honor to have you on my show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Today, the topic of our discussion is surviving and living through the horrific illness followed by death of your truly incredible son, Chaim Dov Brody was just two months younger than me. And I am honored to have you on the show to talk about your experience as a father, as a God-fearing Jew who happens to have a background in social work. Tell us your story. I like to think, and I've said it many times, that I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had a very great parents, great family, as you can attest to, amazing siblings. And I just had a Bar Hashem, a very blessed uh, childhood. And not that we didn't have our challenges, but Bar Hashem, I really was blessed with a tremendous amount of bracha. Wife, amazing best friend and Rebbe, Mary Varabi Rabbi Zal Rodinsky, who has been with, I've been with him for 30 years, and amazing kids. And really, things were cruising along, and we got hit out of left field, or out of right field, whatever field you want to talk about, out of the bleachers, with a really life-altering experience. Yehuda, my oldest, got married, a great girl, great machatanim, and Dovi also, shortly thereafter, found a great girl, great parents, and he was learning in Kyle, things were going beautifully. Miriam, his wife, was pregnant, expecting, and things were learning. Just did their, went to Eretz Yisrael. They came back, everything going fairy fairy tale. And oh, two years we went from doctor to doctor, and a very rare lymphoma, so rare that only eighty people ever got it, and the. His specific case, probably no one ever had. 
we ended up in the NIH in Maryland for a year and approximately, and then we ended up in University of Maryland, Baltimore, hoping for a lung transplant, which never never was able to happen for many reasons. And Dovi was nifter Yotes Adar Aleph two and a half years ago. And that's the story. But over those two years, a little over two years, Dovi went through a torture that is indescribable from the top of his head till the bottom of his feet. And to watch a child in pain, and there was very little that the doctors were able to do to help him with his pain. Not for lack of trying. They tried everything in the book, but nothing seemed to work. And he was just in pain 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And to watch your child in pain is the hardest thing in the world. In a nutshell, that's the story. This is our second take of this episode. The first one was about an hour long, describing the doctor visits and all the different moments of potential miracles and then the ups and the downs throughout the entire process. So it was so heartbreaking to listen to. Can you talk about some of the moments or some of the experiences you've had that may have shifted or changed the dynamics in the relationships with the people closest to you throughout this process? You spent a really long amount of time living in a hospital with your wife, Aunt Reese, and your daughter-in-law. It's a very unconventional way of living. You had to put your jobs on hold. Your lives were on hold. You moved out of your house. You're living in a different state in a hospital. The dynamics have shifted. Can you share some of the experiences that are so foreign to anyone living a regular, not that there's anything regular about anyone's lives, just to illustrate? It's impossible to describe. We sort of Reese, my wife, and Miriam, my daughter-in-law, and I, together with Dovi. The first year, Dovi was, you know, with it and very much, he was a sick person and going through treatments. I would say this from the time from about Pesach till, which was the next Purim, right before Purim, it would have been after Purim had it not been Adar Shani, till he passed away, he was not really functioning in a normal way. He was on a respirator. Then we moved him to Maryland to put him on an ECMO machine. So it wasn't a normal wasn't a normal life for him in any way. He was really attached to machines that were keeping him alive 24 hours, seven days a week. And Miriam and Risi and I sort of became this just team of with one focus, and that was doing whatever we could to keep Dovi alive and give him hope and strength. So as as far as it's, it's very hard to describe how close we became. I mean, Miriam would sleep in the hospital one night and I'd sleep in the hospital the next night because of Yichud issues. We had a rented apartment a block away from the hospital. And Risi spent the entire day from eight o'clock in the morning till at least 11 o'clock at night sitting at 
Dovey's side. So it was just, it was surreal, but we became this team of, it was, it was incredible to watch them. Dovey and Miriam had such an incredible relationship. Reese and I would marvel how we just never saw them fight or come out not get upset at each other. It doesn't sound even possible. We just were there. We were with each, we were with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Shabbos, Yom Tif, there wasn't a time where we weren't together. You become very close beyond what, what anyone, you know, what would seem, what anyone else could imagine. A father-in-law, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. I remember Danielle, your sister, my aunt, referring to Miriam as Rus, somebody who didn't leave her mother-in-law's side. Her... And you have to remember this. She had a baby as he was born. And a couple of weeks later, Dovi was diagnosed for the first time. Basically, the Teichmans, Miriam's parents, took care of Eti for two years straight. And you know, Miriam did whatever she could, obviously, but she dedicated herself to Dovi full-time. And the Teichmans were unbelievable. Without, without, and again, I was able, my job is the type of some part of my, I'm a clinical social worker, so that my my practice, uh, my private practice, I put on hold. And my job in yeshiva, a lot of my supervisory role, I was able to do on the phone. And Risi was also able to work from the hot, from literally from the hospital room. So we were doing, so that did, it was helpful in that it just, it kept us busy while all day sitting in a hospital room. You know, I compare it to sitting on a, on an airplane. You're on an airplane for 12 hours. Even if you're sleeping half the time, it's just so exhausting. Being in a hospital room is like sitting on an airplane on steroids. It's that type of surreal experience where you're in a different world, like in a different zone. And just sitting there is, is terribly exhausting. And that's not even not putting in not putting into consideration the watching someone you love more than anything, just be in pain 24 hours a day. You mentioned an episode when, at the very, very beginning, when Dovi was in Colombia and he didn't know yet what was happening. He had an interesting conversation with you about Miriam. And that was actually even before. That was in Hackensack. The first time we got sent to the emergency room for his original diagnosis, and he called me over, and this was when we thought it was no big deal. And I didn't think it was any big deal, at least. And maybe Dovi somewhere deep inside sensed that there was more serious and more, more difficult news to come. And he called me over and he said, if anything happens to me, because Miriam had a relative who went through or is going through even presently some very like really very I would say brain debilitating disease and he said if something happens to me that I you know can't function I, I'm making you a shliach to to give Miriam a get because I, I don't want her to be stuck with someone like that and I was just I was like seriously Dovi that's what you're telling me it's not what a father wants to hear but looking back just to see how that's the type of person he was 
who would always think about everyone else before himself. There were so many different organizations and kind people, Jews, not Jews, family members, strangers. Would you like to share any specific episodes or moments of kindness? Well, the organizations, it's, it seems so, you know, passe, where Bikachelum is incredible. We should never need it, but the Bikachelum in Hackensack, and then in Colombia, and then in the NIH, there was Audrey, who was at Sadekis, who runs that organization incredibly, somehow managed to fundraise single handedly uh, a Bikachelum house, which is, had a, millions of dollars. And she took care of us like we're the only people that, that she had to think about. And it, it's embarrassing because like, the nurses would ask us, oh, where are you staying? And people that were there for that long needed to rent out, need to rent apartments, and they, you know, take care of their physical needs. And they would say, well, where are you staying? And I was like, across the street. Oh, really? Where? And I would try to explain to them, well, there's a house that is there for... Jewish people in need, and how much do you pay? Oh, we don't pay anything. And this is a very expensive neighborhood. Bethesda is very expensive real estate. Oh, it, it's free. And what about food? Where do you get food? Oh, oh they feed us for free. <laughs> and after the 10th time saying that story to people, you start to realize how strange that is and how totally out of the ordinary. And people give you a look like, are you serious? Like there's an organization there that's like there for you just because you're Jewish? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and that was then duplicated in Baltimore. But as far as people, so just being, I tell the guys in yeshiva all the time, you know, the old joke of the Hispanic guy waiting on the side of the New York State Thruway with a yarmulke. And he's, and the guys, and people are pulling over to change his tire. And the guy says, oh, where are you from? Or he says, no, I'm not Jewish. I just keep the yarmulke in my glove compartment in case I get stuck. I know how to put it on and I'll get help. So <laughs> to give up Yiddishkeit is this, you're part of the most incredible VIP club ever known to man. And to give it up, even just selfishly is the silliest thing you could ever do because there are total strangers living all over the world who will be there to help you just because you're another Jew. That's it. There were people that were in that home that weren't religious just because you're Jewish. They're there for you. And that's an incredible... beyond incredible to be part of such a people. But when we got to the NIH, just as far as individuals go, I have to mention the Rosh Hashiva and the Rebetzin Lepiansky, the Rosh Hashiva of the Shiva of Greater Washington, who I called just because though we started listening to Shiram online, and we were listening to him on the way down, and we didn't think we were going to be staying over that first time. We thought we were driving home. And when we found that we were staying over, we were so shocked. We didn't know what to do. We were, where are we going to stay? What, we didn't even know about the Bikr Chaylum. We didn't know anything at that point. And we said, the Shulchan Aruch says, if you're in 
if you have a chayla in your house, if you have someone who's sick in your home, go to a wise, go to a Talmud Chacham, and he should have him for you. So he said, hey, we're in Silver Spring, let's call Rebel Piansky, a Talmud Chacham, let's make, let's get a bracha. And I got his number, we called, he answered the phone himself, and he didn't know me, didn't know Dovi, didn't know Miriam, he didn't know Risi, we were all there. And I just explained their situation, and we just want to get a bracha. And if the Rashiva would be able to give us a bracha, and he said, bracha, come for supper. And I was like, come for supper? What? And it was supper time. And we walked in, and the Rebetzin served us a, a delicious supper from out of no, I don't know where she managed to, how she did that. And the entire time we were in Silver Spring, the Rebetzin came to visit us and hooked us up with the people that you needed, that we needed to get help from. She had us for Shabbos. It was a beautiful Shabbos. And Dovi asked the Roshiva, the Rebetzin asked, can I get, do you need anything? So Dovi said, this is when he was feeling much, much better. He said, when I get out of the hospital, can you ask the Roshiva to learn, learn with me Bechavrusa? And the Roshiva said, okay. And I think they learned two or three times before Dovi got so sick that it wasn't possible. And they came to visit us. We went to Baltimore. They came to visit us there as well. Just We were just strangers. And when we got to Baltimore, to mention Dr. Samet, he met us there also. I had never met him before. And when they flew us by helicopter because Dovi was so sick. Miriam and Dovi went by helicopter, and Risa and I drove from Silver Spring to downtown Baltimore. And Dr. Samet was there. He was one of the people that helped us get into the lung transplant unit. And I'll never forget, the doctor was there. He said, oh, Dr. Samet, Roni, this is your, these are your friends. And the head of the unit, he looked him in the eye and he said, no, this is my family. And it wasn't a lie. He took care of us. I don't think if I would be his brother, he could have taken better care of me and our family. And then there were nurses from nurses who came in just um, beyond, beyond incredible. Yafa, just she would come. She was in nursing school. And she would stop by in the middle of the night on different shifts with pizza and ice cream and like an angel. She was incredible. Amazing. Yafa ended up marrying a boy named Chaim Dov. That was Dovi's name, Chaim Dov. So I can't help but think that her kindness, Hashem, was very much repaid her very, very quickly. Yeah, I would say those three people were just, I mean, there were tons of people. And I think even more, not more, but without your family, you can't. Your mom came for three days from Russia to just sit with us. And our Risi's family, my, my brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law were just incredible. 
we knew who thou were. I mean, just I'm saying, not newly married, but some just little kids, and they moved into our house and took over, and just were incredible the way Huvi just became not just for David, not as not just as uh, sister-in-law, but she took over the mommy role. And she had uh, now a teenager who was and going through his own trauma. Um, Zevi and Aliza came down to Baltimore. They they all came down, but Zevi and Aliza came down countless Shabbosim and made our Shabbos just lit it up with, you know, took us out of that gloom. They brought us. Shabbos countless times for their for their for Yumtif came down, which it's so difficult to be away for Yumtif. And Mendy took care of David incredibly. And David just for surviving this trauma was so difficult. He was the baby and his mommy and daddy ran away, you know, left. And he said one thing, David said something at the at the Levaya that I'll I'll never forget. He said how you didn't abandon me because Reese and I felt sort of like we abandoned him. And he said, you didn't abandon me, but I learned from the way you and mommy were with Dovi, how much you love us all. And that was stuck with me, but they were all incredible. Like one big team pulled together and really did. Everyone did what they had to do. My in-laws came almost every week. It was hard for them. They're older people, and they drove in, always bringing something, food for us, for the nurses. Just a tip. Bring food for the nurses. Anyone's ever in the hospital? And you could just, if you're anywhere, you bring them bagels and cream cheese or donuts from Dunkin' Donuts. It goes such a long way. And that's just a Small tip. No one should ever need it. Show your show your appreciation. Without your family, my sisters just were there for me. Mm-hmm. Like you just, I just knew we all knew we had a backup team of just I don't know. It felt like hundreds of people that were just behind us. Yeshiva family, people davening. We could, you could literally feel it from the hospital room. Can you share about the bone marrow drive that was done for Dovi and how many people it saved since? It's just that was like a, just an incredible side story. And what's interesting is that you didn't really, at the end, Yehuda and Zevi turned out to be matches for some reason, which I don't want to get into. They they didn't want to use them. They want the doctors wanted a stranger because they were afraid of some kind of genetic component, which never turned out to be the case. So they wanted to use a different, they wanted to use a stranger. And for some reason, we don't have automatic system like Darya Sharim, where automatically every single high school boy and high school girl are joined to the donor bank, which Aguda actually under Shia Markowitz's leadership is trying to before COVID was actually moving this forward, this idea, he had Dovi in mind, I spoke to him 
when we were in the NIH to try to move this forward, um, to, to make it that it would be standard, that it's just a swab. And people don't know a bone marrow transplant. All they need now, most of the time, is just they need your blood. You go in and you feel a little schwach for, for a day, but they harvest your blood. They don't, it's not a surgical uh, procedure. You just sit up, you, know, you sit it, they attach you to it, just like you're giving blood. It, it's no more difficult than giving blood. And it's mind-boggling to think that we don't have a standard system yet. But anyway, his friends, we don't have it. And what they do is when there's an emergency, the community gets involved. And his Dovi's friends, you know, the Gift of Life organization, incredible organization, together with Dovi's uncle, Sholi Greenberger, and Dovi's very close friend, Yitzi Bamberger, put together a, a drive in America and Israel. I think they're close to 20,000. They did 20,000 swabs. They added about 20,000 people to the donor bank. And they've done, they made over, I think, close to 200 matches were found. And I don't know how many at this point. The last I heard was high double digits in bone marrow transplants done off of those, off of that drive, off of that one drive, how many lives were saved. Incredible. What was it like leaving the hospital after Dovi was nifter? It was like going home from a war. It's the only way I could describe it. Although I, I was never in a war. But I felt like we driving home, like the war was over. The war was over. And it was just, that was it. We were in a different zone, a different planet. Coming back, driving up from Baltimore was just a surreal experience. And then how our halacha set up, the shiva and all of these halachas that you, that you do are so crucial in getting you through these times. I'll never forget when I first went to social work school and I took a course on, on grieving. I'll never forget, I was reading a book for school. It was, called, it was called Death and Dying. And I remember Dovi walked into the room. I was reading it in my bed and Dovi said, oh, daddy, some light reading before you go to sleep. <laughs> these big words, death and dying. And I remember being fascinated how the science basically mirrors halacha. I mean, what makes people right at the beginning, make sure you're there with just with the basics, with food and make sure that just to be there and you don't need to, you don't need to say anything. Like you could write a book of on stupid things that people say. They don't realize you're not supposed to say, you're just supposed to listen. Let the, let the oval talk. And what? the Shulchan Aruch knew all these things and I was like, I remember reading it and thinking, hey, did they, le- did they learn before they wrote this book, before they wrote the textbook? And uh, I don't think they did, but it's incredible how. Halacha understands psychology. What are some of the things that were stupid that people said or did? What are some things that would be helpful tips for others to know when trying to support and be there for people who are going through something as torturous as this. People never know what to do. You know, that's a common thing. What do I do? And there's some simple, th- I would say the positive, let's start with some positive things. And things that meant so much to me and which are anyone could do today. You could just send someone a text 
I'm thinking about you. I'm davening for you. I miss you. You're in my tefillos. Send the person a text. One of the rabbi and yeshiva, Rabbi Ringel, Mamash Tzadik, unbelievable, special person. Every single Friday sent me a text with a little bit of a, a bracha, on the, uh, a twist on the parasha, on the theme of the parasha. That he, an original, but you don't have to be, you don't have to be such a lambdan or a Talmud Chacham to do that. You're just saying, just keep it simple even. Like, that's special, obviously. But just the people who I got texts from saying, I miss you. I miss you in yeshiva. Thinking about you. Tell Dovi I'm davening for him. You could do that. What about the things not to say? You don't know what's going to be better. And people try to, you know, be optimistic. And the optimism may work for a week or for, for two weeks or a month. But when the month stretches when the months stretch into a year and the years stretch into two years, it becomes hollow. Betachem doesn't mean that things are going to work out the way you want them to. And if we teach it that way in school, it, 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 it's a very big disservice because things don't always work out the way you want them to. We Part of a very big component of our religion is to hope for the best and never to give up hope. And Hashem can do anything if he wants to, which keeps us hopeful, which is why we're still here. On the other hand, it is up to him and not up to, not up to you, not up to me. Hashem has his plan. And ultimately, we have to make ourselves okay with what he decides. And when you think that Hashem is going to listen to you, because you daven the certain, you daven so much now, Hashem owes me, and it's going to work out the way I want it. So when things don't work out the way you want them to, and they don't, life is not a fairy tale. Dovi and Miriam didn't live happily ever after. You're going to end up with a lot of questions, a lot of anger. So don't minimize things. Don't say, oh, it's going to, oh, it's only this, it's only that. You, we don't, you don't know. You don't know, and I don't know. How do you move on after coming back home and resuming life, quote-unquote, with so much grief and anger and loss? I had a lot of grief. I, I don't know why I wasn't angry. And Risu would ask me a question, and I don't really have a good answer because, let's say, Dovi had his own Holocaust, which I watched. I was... Lamaisa, I was not in pain, my own personal pain. There's the pain of, of watching your child in pain, which is its own form of Gehenim. And that I did experience, but as a father, and but I didn't experience it as a mother, which is even more painful. I think it's I think it's biologically evolution, whatever you want to talk about, evolutionarily more difficult for a mother to watch a child in pain than a father to watch a child in pain. I think they're just, mothers are just wired that way. And it's very rare that you see a mother being able to roll over in the middle of the night with a crying baby. And it's very common, <laughs> at least it was by me. I was able to fall back, roll over. Maybe that's because I always knew that Reese would be up. But whatever the whatever it is, a mother hears the baby first. She just hears that, that they're just connected in a different way. And... It's really a question, like people that were in Nazi Germany, you could blame it on the Germans. The Germans were evil. Hashem gives human beings choice, and the Germans chose to be evil. 
obviously Hashem is in control and everything. Hashem allowed the Germans to do to us what they did. But I guess in a in philosophical way, you can blame people. When your son is in the hospital, if you believe that Hashem is the one that got him sick, and you believe that Hashem is the one that could get him better, if Hashem or anyone to move away from Hashem, if someone was torturing your child, day after day, day after day, month after month, year after year, why wouldn't you hate that person? If it was a person, you would hate them. And justifiably so. And I don't have an answer. I don't know. Maybe I don't have so much betachem. <laughs> I, I never had a good answer for that. I, I just don't, I didn't feel hatred. Sorrow and pain and a lot of other emotions, but hatred wasn't, I don't know why. I don't have a good answer for that, but it it would be definitely a normal emotional reaction as a social worker who studied grief and has helped other people with their grieving. I'd say that's a very normal and common feeling that people are angry at Hashem when things don't go their way. And when they have to watch their child or children in pain and suffering, that is a very normal reaction. How do you deal with it? First, you acknowledge it, and it's it's okay to feel what you're feeling. Part of those feelings are a recognition, like I said, that you believe that Hashem is doing this. And that's a form of betachen, and that's a form of recognizing that Hashem is running the world. And uh, ultimately, we don't understand. That's the ultimate answer. These are, There are certain things that we will never, that we won't understand. And we ask, try to make sense out of it. It's not going to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about Miriam and Etty over the last two and a half years since the death? So, Baruch Hashem, Miriam found a great guy. And I was very fortunate that she's living here in Muncie, very close to, very close to us. And I get to see Etty all the time. And... She married a very special person whose wife passed away. They had their own parsha. She also had cancer and passed away a year before Dovi. And so now Miriam has taken upon herself her own Eti and three other older children. And looks to me like she's doing an amazing job. She's an incredible person. Really remarkable. After Baltimore. She moved in with you, which was very unique. What was that like? How did she decide? We were like three Holocaust survivors. Nobody else in the world could understand what we lived through. And I think we sort of needed each other just to to feel normal. Just because we came from from a different planet together. I could totally understand. Miriam has great parents, really special people. The Teichmans are fantastic. But we were just, our experience was so unique and difficult and surreal. I I totally understand why. We were just coming off a different, from a different planet. I totally understand, you know, why she chose to to live Mm. with us. And it was her transition to moving in with her daughter for the first time. Right. 
the Teichmans were incredible. So supportive. And Can you share with us a little bit about Dovi himself? Just a special, special person who just loved to learn, loved to always gave of himself, always learned with younger guys. From the time he was in high school, he would learn with younger Talmidim and he had chavrusas, always his, always had chavrus. I can't even tell you how many people came and called from Eretz Yisrael and told us Adobe learned with them for 15 minutes, a half an hour. He learned with, you know, he learned with me Tanakh, he learned with me Gemara, he learned with me Halacha. And how many people in his short life, how many people told me that Adobe just changed them? He was just that type of person. And very much under the radar, not loud, very idle fine and refined the last person you'd think Hashem would want to take so young but that's what the Gemara says sometimes Hashem needs special young young neshamas for whatever reason I'd say you know every morning part of the grieving process I think important for people that are going through a struggle like this losing a child it's like every morning there's we say are the berchasashachar, and I think the bracha that we say when you hear when a relative dies is baruch dayano emes, and you sort of need to add that bracha to your berchasashachar every morning, maybe before anaisim l'sech levina, maybe after, but it becomes part in order for you to function, you need to be able to grieve every single day. Give your time, give yourself time and permission. I would say 10 minutes, 20 minutes. It's okay. Look at those pictures. Give yourself that time to, because you don't want to forget. Because forgetting is its own painful. You don't want to forget. You never want to forget your child. But it's so painful. But be okay with that. And let yourself have that time in the morning where you grieve and you cry over the loss and the loss of potential and the loss of your dreams and all the sad things. And then you can move on with your day in a much more productive way than you just to put it aside and think that it's you're just going to avoid those feelings because... They're just going to come out in other ways. And if unresolved grief could be toxic for a person. And just allow it to be. Let yourself cry for as long as you need. But then there is a point where you just got to move on with your day and do what you got to do. Wow. Thank you so much, Uncle Bensi. Just want to share a few things. I remember driving in, it was, it would be an entire day of an or at least daycare of a day. I would drop off Ella, drive up two to three hours. When I did the NIH once, just because the security would take up another 30 minutes. And I would stay and then get in the car, go pick up. I'd get back by four, four thirty, And then in Baltimore. I was able to do it more often. I remember Dovi and 
wanted me to talk about the podcast. It was much harder than doing a podcast because I had no idea. Was Dovi enjoying it? Was it boring? Why would Dovi be interested in it? Now he he read the most academic intellectual books. Why would my podcast with Jewish women and the arts, those kinds of topics be interesting to him? But he always asked me to talk about that when he was able to signal that. One of the things I read somewhere was when you do Bikr Chaylin, this is, like you said, things not to do. Like, I don't remember which book it was that I read this in, but it was so true that someone asked they should go. It was like a two or three hour trip to the hospital. And the advice they got was, if you want to go, go. But you should just know to be happy if you get there and you get to the room and you have to turn around and come back and then not even see a family member. If you're willing to do that, then go. And if not, don't go. And that was like, well, because sometimes people show up and there's a test or they're being changed or there are a million different things that could go wrong. And even if you were told three hours ago that, yeah, it's okay to come today, but by the time you get there, things change on a dime. And the last thing the the family or the sick person needs is to feel guilty about not taking care of their visitor. And that's very hard, especially if people are driving hours and hours to see you. Like, okay, now I got to do that. I got to see them. But you need to realize that, no, just peeking your head in and, and you realize it's not a good time. Or, and just, or you, sometimes you may not even be able to peek your head in. It will say, send the text. I'm outside. It's okay. I'm going home. I just want you to know that I drove here and I love you and I'm here for you. And I totally understand. And it, you know, that's it. That is what it, the, the visitor, remember the hula or the person that's the family that you're trying to be mechazic. That's what they'll remember that you were there, that you made the effort. It's not about any brilliant thing you're going to say when you're in the room because there is nothing to say. It's just about being there. And if you made the effort, they're going to know it. And the last thing they need is to feel guilty that they can't, you know, entertain you. And it's so true. So true. Another thing that I read, which was important is, is I don't remember which article I read, but it's called the fetching circle. And the closer you are, the sick person is in the middle. There are and then every person, let's say, so me, Reese, and Miriam would be in the next circle. And then your parents and your children are in the circle around that. So the rule is you only get to fetch out, no fetching in. So that means the sick person can fetch to the people that are one level removed to them. That's okay. But the people that are one level removed don't get to fetch to the sick person. And then you get to fetch to your parents, but your parents don't get to fetch to you because this is hard on your parents to watch a grandchild. And I thought that was such a great, it's called the fetching circle. And you remember, you only get to fetch out, no fetching. And out. it's hard on everyone. And you, and you sort of lose sight of who's the one that, as you get further and further out, you're just there to be mechazic, the person, the pe person or people in the middle. So that's a, that was another great tip.
Only kvetch out, no kvetching in. I hope I wasn't kvetching in now. <laughs> no, not at all. You were great. It was so nice when you came. And though we love the time that you spent with him, I remember very clearly. And that you went through all the effort. And that's what I guess that's the point. It's that we knew that you went through all that effort to be there. It wasn't like you think like, what smart thing am I going to say? So that put, it's not about that. It's about that we knew how difficult it was for you and you did it anyway. And sometimes I remember it was very quick. You could, you had to turn around and go back, but the effort that you put in is what meant so much to us that we sensed it. Not, it wasn't any, I'm sure you said brilliant things also when you were there, but <laughs> those things I don't remember, but that you came is what made that powerful impression. That's comforting to hear because you feel pretty useless when something so, so crazy is happening to to somebody so close to you, so dear. It was a normal occurrence to just be going about your day and we would just have a crying session on the phone or in the middle of your activity. Take that moment and have it, then continue. Well, now I think the kvetching circle is only when you're in the hospital. Afterwards, we can kvetch to each other. <laughs> then, I feel, then it feels good when you're, it's, afterwards, it's reminiscing of, of the loss. And that, that feels good. It does, it's not a, it's nice. A parent loves it when somebody remembers their child. Hashem should only bless you and give you comfort. I mean, thank you, Freddy. Continued Hatzlacha in your work as well. Amen. Should have a, Thank you. And all your work, all your special work, especially with your kin, delicious Kindalach. That's the main thing. Amen. Your most holy work. Thank you. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. Keep tuning in for more episodes. Keep reaching out with your feedback. Follow me on Instagram. Send me a WhatsApp or an email. Please keep recommending me to clients for my podcasting services. And lastly, have a ksiva v'chasimatova.